Wow. I, uh, to all of us uh, prodigals, you know, prodigal sons and daughters, to all of us who have kind of wandered off, gone on our own way, I sometimes imagine and I imagine today that our Heavenly Father is saying, welcome home. Welcome home. Now you might, that might be hard for you to believe that God might say that to you, depending on where you're coming from. But, uh, you know, I, I've noticed that the God of the Bible um, often said and did things that were completely opposite of what we thought he would say and do in situations. And I think one of the things is, is that these days it's easy for you and I uh, to see life the way we want to see it, you know, um, we, with, with the internet and with our phones, um, we choose the news that we, uh, that we uh, view, we, we uh, filter the opinions that we want to hear, and doing that can kind of distort the way that we see the world. And I think the same thing can happen um, with the way we see God. Uh, if we're not careful, little by little, over time, we can reshape our perception of him into what we imagine him to be rather than for what he really is or who he really is. And so today, we're, we're starting a new series uh, over the next couple of weeks. Uh, I've entitled it, That's What He Said. <laughs> and uh, basically, over the next few weeks, we're going to look at some things that Jesus said that were surprising and even shocking to us because um, they are the absolute, complete opposite of what we thought he would say, what we would expect him to say in those situations. And my hope is, is that this will help you, help us have a little more accurate view of who he really is. Because I think that sometimes you and I, we just imagine uh, God saying things to us that he would never say. I mean, for example, today is Easter, and we all have kind of these, you know, some of you are like, you know, God's looking at me and walking me, watching me walk into the church, and he's, you know, he's going to strike, he's like, better not go to church, you know, I mean, we just imagine these things, or on Easter Sunday, we imagine that Jesus might say things like, blessed, blessed are those who are wearing nice Easter outfits, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, we think God is really impressed with that, by the way, some of you still can't get over that I'm wearing a jacket today, because, uh, this is, uh, this is all that fits anymore now, and uh, <laughs> I tell people often, and you've heard this before, that if you see me wearing a jacket, um, I'm, I'm either marrying you or I'm burying you, and neither of those are good news for you, amen? <laughs> no, I'm joking. Uh, but we imagine him saying things to us like, as you gather together, I want to make sure that you eat peeps and Cadbury eggs in remembrance of me this Easter. Or, or maybe we imagine him saying, come, follow me. Uh, and, and on Easter, no one will fight in the car on the way to church. Hallelujah. <laughs> Some of you are like, how did he know? How, did, how, did, how do you know that we fought? Well, I'll tell you, this is why, this is the reason my wife and I drive separate cars to church every week. We, we just figured it works better for us. And, and, and the truth is, is I feel guilty because over the years, I feel real guilty. Over the years, we've had a lot of conversations in our cars that kind of sounded like this. Would you people stop fighting? We're on our way to worship Jesus! Here's the thing, I don't, I don't want you to raise your hands, but um, I wonder, how many of you, how many of us struggle with feeling guilty about stuff in our lives, you know? 
most of us wrestle with some sort of guilt, you know. I mean, we feel guilty for things that we've said or done, or we feel guilty for things that we didn't say or didn't do. Um, you know, uh, I think there's all kinds of guilts out there that people wrestle with. Uh, I heard that there's a thing called food guilt. Clearly, I do not struggle with that at all. I don't care. <laughs> but uh, I've heard there's food guilt. Uh, my wife, Julie, tells me that there's mom guilt, that she struggles with mom guilt. Some of you moms might understand that she just has this constant feeling that she's never doing enough for our kids. Anyone else feel that way? Any other moms maybe? Yeah. Um, some moms, you know, work and they feel guilty that they're not staying at home. And other moms um, are staying at home and they feel guilty that they're not working. You just can't win. Um, I think that there's a general type of guilt that many of us struggle with. That we just kind of walk around with this sense, you know, or just like I feel guilty because I can never say no to this person. You know, or I feel guilty because I always say yes to doing this thing that I don't want to do. Um, of course, there's spiritual guilt. We're all familiar with that. Um, I feel guilty that I don't pray, or I feel guilty that I don't ever read my Bible, or I feel guilty because I said some bad words, or I uh, lied, or I struggle with lust. And then the thing is, is that there's also this big guilt that some people have, this cloud that just follows them. You feel guilty because you stole something, or because you hurt someone badly. Or uh, maybe you've lost something of great value, you know, you, you just say, you know, I did the best I could to, to, to hold my marriage together, but it still ended in divorce. I, I understand it. I, I, I even have pastor's guilt. Um, you know, I, I, I rarely feel like I'm living up to my own standard of what it means to be a pastor, much less what God's standard is. Um, I, I, I know, you know, that I'm at home if I'm, or if I'm at church doing the things that I'm called to do as a pastor. I feel guilty that I'm not at home being a good husband or a good father to my kids. And when I'm at home and I'm hanging out with a family, I feel guilty that I'm not being a better pastor for you all. But most of all, I feel guilty for the dumb things that I've done as a pastor. And boy, there's a long list of that. I mean, I, my heart is, is that I want to help people. I want to serve people and I want to help them. But often, some of the things that I do, I end up in doing the opposite. Um, for example, and I haven't told you this, uh, but uh, about uh, sometime before COVID hit, I did a wedding uh, for a young man who attended SCC. I don't think he attends here anymore. And when I tell you what happened, you'll understand why. Uh, uh, but uh, he was a single guy. Came to church every week, just loved and worshiped God. And, I mean, this is a rarity. And then uh, God allowed him to meet a woman, fell in love. Uh, she was from Denver. And uh, he asked her to marry him, and she said, yeah. And then he asked me if I would do their wedding, the ceremony, and I told him I'd be honored. And, and so about a month before the wedding, uh, she came to town, and I got a chance to meet her for the first time. And we had lunch together over at Freshies. And uh, after I was introduced to her, we started talking about the wedding. And she started telling me names of people, uh, of family members and of friends that were involved in the wedding. I was writing those down. She told me the name of the DJ that's local and also the wedding planner. And so I, I wrote those down. And somehow, some way, over that next month, I got a little mixed up. And at the wedding, when I introduced the bride and the groom to the audience, instead of saying the bride's name, I said the wedding planner's name. <laughs> I'm telling you, that's a bad move. I've done some dumb, dumb, dumb things, but announcing the wrong name for the bride at her wedding might be the worst. I'm a bad pastor. Everybody say bad pastor. Uh, it's funny, though. Uh, uh, that fella... 
watched the service this morning at 8.30 and heard that story and texted me. He said, man, we, don't, we just laugh. <laughs> it was the funniest thing. We laugh about that day. That's a good heart. <laughs> I feel better about that. Uh, but uh, we all wrestle with guilt and shame for things that we've done, big stuff and little stuff. Some of you, in fact, are here this morning. You probably feel a little guilt because it's been a while since you've been to church. Don't. Don't feel guilty. We here at the Christian Center are glad that you're here this morning. Amen? Amen. We really are. And you're in the right place. And, and what I want to talk about today, we'll, we'll, I, I think we'll connect to you. What I want to do today is I want to look at what Jesus said about guilt. Um, you know, I don't know about you, but when I was younger, when I was a child, I j- just uh, struggled feeling guilty when it came to God. I felt like God, I imagined God up in heaven just pointing his finger at me, going, you bad monkey, look what you've done. Look, look at the mess that you've made again. You should be ashamed of yourself. And, and I just kind of walked around with that cloud of guilt. And, and, I, and I thought as I've gotten older, what if I was wrong about that? What if, what if he didn't say those things to me? What if he didn't feel that way? Well, gosh, if that was true, then, man, uh, it would change everything about how I, 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 I see God and how I see myself and how I see the world, Right? So what I want to do today is I want to share a story with you from Luke chapter 23. Um, If you have your Bibles, open it up there if you would. Um, If you don't have your Bibles, don't feel guilty. (laughs) I'm going to put the story up on the screen here behind me. Um, What we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at the account, an account of uh, Dr. Luke's account of the final hours of Jesus' life. And what's going to be surprising to you and I is how we see God's Son depicted in this story. It's interesting. Um, instead of wearing a golden crown as, as the Son of God, uh, we see Jesus wearing a crown of thorns. Instead of being surrounded by a bunch of servants at his beck and call, we see Jesus being surrounded by criminals. Instead of uh, sitting on a throne, we see Jesus hanging on a cross. Just totally opposite again. And uh, in Luke chapter 23, verse 32, Luke starts out by saying this. Two other men. He says two other men. Everybody say two. Two. Uh, This is important. I want you to pay attention to the numbers in this story. Because in a minute, I'm going to ask you a math question. Okay? And I want you to get the answer right. And so Luke says, two other men, both criminals, were also led out with Jesus to be executed. In verse 33, he says, when they came to the place called Golgotha, or the place of the skull, they crucified Jesus there along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. Now here's my question. How many people were hanging on a cross that day? Three. That's right. That's, that's answer three. I'm going to suggest to you that that's significant. You may have never noticed this, but it's significant. And I'll tell you why in a bit. But before I do, let me first talk to you about death by crucifixion. Why? Because I think this will give us a little context into what Jesus did for us, but also it'll help us understand who he was hanging next to right here, okay? So back then, listen to me, I'll get through this, crucifixion was the most painful, the most shameful way that you could die. Um, You probably have heard the phrase excruciating pain. Have you ever heard that before? That's interesting. That excruciating is basically a, a compound word. It's two words mashed together. The first word is ex which means out of or from. And uh, the other word is excruciating, which comes from the word crucifix or cross. And so we have this term that describes a kind of pain that could only come 
from hanging and being nailed to a cross. It's a very painful death, no doubt about it. Not only that, it was a, it was a shameful way to die. Uh, back then there was a belief and a saying, uh, people said, and they believed this, that cursed is anyone who dies on a tree, which was just a total reference to hanging on a cross naked in front of the world. It was a very shameful thing. And the first thing that would happen even before you got to that was, this, was a thing they called a scourging, which is what the Roman guards would do to you. They would, they would take a whip, and the whip often had like nine little kind of strips or nine tails, I guess you could say. And they would dip that in blood, and then they would dip that into broken pieces of glass and pottery. And then they would stretch you out over a, over a rock, and your back would be exposed. And they would whip you with this 39 times. 39 lashes, literally pieces of flesh would be torn from you. And uh, the reason they didn't do 40 was that it was believed that that would kill you. And so they just wanted to get you to the edge. And, and you, 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 all the loss of blood, you would go into shock. Um, often, um, your internal organs would be exposed. And as if that isn't bad enough, then they would force you to carry your own cross to a place where they would hammer about 7-inch uh, spikes stakes into your wrists right here and right here and into your heels and and those three points is where you would be held hanging on a cross and hanging you know with all of your body weight at those three points you just had no way to breathe and the only way you could breathe is by pushing up letting down and exhaling and inhaling by doing that and you would do that for as long as you could humanly do that and uh, it usually took about two to four days for a person to die uh, on that, which also made it the most expensive way to die because the Rome would have to pay four guards, Roman guards, to stand by until you died. And people went mad hanging on the cross, uh, under the, baking under the sun, and uh, suffering from dehydration and exhaustion and, and the whipping. And eventually you would die of suffocation. You would just give up and you couldn't breathe. Or if the soldiers were merciful and they wanted to get at home early, they would bash your legs and break them so that you couldn't breathe anymore. Now, the only reason I'm bringing this up is this was reserved for the worst of the worst criminals. Those two criminals hanging next to Jesus weren't just pickpockets. Um, they had done some horrible things. And their penalty was to die the most painful, expensive, and shameful way imaginable. And so you have three people hanging on three crosses that day. Two thieves and Jesus in the middle. Luke tells us that there was a crowd that had gathered around and they were not encouraging. Luke says that many of them were mocking these people. They were cursing at them because of the things that those guys had done to them. They were angry. They were spitting on them. And in the midst of all of that chaos, Jesus, Luke tells us that Jesus, the Son of God, looks up to heaven and says, Father, take them out. Kill them all. Send 10,000 angels down here and wipe out all these ungrateful people. Smite them, almighty smiter. Give them cancer or give them leprosy or... Give them hemorrhoids in their eyes. I mean, this is what I would say if I hadn't done anything. This is what I would say. But that's not what he said. Um, instead, Luke says in verse 34 that Jesus said, Father, forgive them. 
for they don't know what they're doing. <laughs> I, I mean, I read that the first time when I was 21, and it was surprising to me. I was like, wow. I mean, again, I had this perception in my mind, and I, I believed, and I, had, I tend to think of God upstairs pointing his finger, criticizing and chastising for us for all the things that we're doing. But instead, at our worst um, moment as human beings, God is forgiving us. In other words, that's his default. <laughs> wow. But that's not all. Um, in the midst of this crazy situation, an interesting and uh, surprising conversation uh, breaks out. In verse 39, Luke says this, that one of the criminals who was hanging there next to Jesus hurled insults at Jesus. He said, hey, aren't you the Messiah? <laughs> Why don't you save yourself and save us too? Come on. This is crazy. It's an arrogant, prideful man criticizing Jesus at the worst moment. This bad, bad stuff. But in verse 40, it goes on. It says this, but the other criminal rebuked him. He turned and he said to him, don't you even fear God? Don't you even fear God since we are under the same sentence? And what he says in verse 41 is remarkable. Don't miss this. This is key. He said, we are being punished justly. For we are getting what our des deeds deserve. We're getting what we deserve. In other words, we both have committed horrible crimes. And as bad as this punishment is, we're getting exactly what we deserve. What an admission. You know, um, our culture kind of has that, that attitude about what people deserve and what they should get. In fact, there's sayings that we often use in these circumstances. See if you can finish this statement or these statements. Ready? What goes around comes around, right? Or uh, how about this one? They're getting their just desserts, right? Or, hey, they made their bed and now they can lie down in it, right? That's how we see that and and, and, and there's a perception that we get that. In fact, I don't know about you, um, but um, there's a little part of me, a little dark part of me, that actually likes it when someone actually gets what they deserve when they've done something wrong. Oh, oh, you're too holy. You don't, you don't do that. You don't secretly go, oh. I was thinking about one of the things that I, man, uh, sometimes I drive to Denver and sometimes I'll be driving to Denver somewhere between like Silverthorne or, and Kremlin. It's really slow in there. And I'm just, I'm going along and out of nowhere, some dude, some guy in a sports car goes blowing by me by like 90 miles an hour. And I hate that. I'm like, here I am doing a speed limit on this stupid mountain road. And you go blowing by me 90 miles an hour. And I'll tell you this, if about four or five miles down the road... I see him, I see a red light flashing, and I drive up and I see a, a, an officer drive by, and I see an officer handing him a ticket, the red guy in the sports car. You know what? I'll be honest, something inside of me goes like this. <laughs> Some of you are like, man, you should keep that on the inside. That's a bad image. But I, I'm like, yes! <laughs> Why? Because we all believe that people should get what they deserve when they do wrong. Right? Unless, of course, it's us. We don't, want, we don't want to get what we deserve, but we want her to get what she deserves or him. And, but here's the second criminal. Look at this. Don't miss this. The second criminal said this. We deserve this, for we are getting what we 
deserve. And then that criminal in verse 42, he looks at Jesus and he says, Jesus, listen to this. He says, listen to this heart. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And what Jesus says next is maybe the most surprising and to me it's the most exhilarating thing that he ever said. He didn't say, oh, sorry, buddy. <laughs> You're toast. You've done way too much. And it is way too late. In fact, brother, you are going to the place where the worm never dies and where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth forevermore, buddy. Because in my kingdom, people always get what they deserve. No. He didn't say that. Uh, instead, Jesus said this. Jesus said this to a criminal who couldn't do a thing to pay back the people that he had hurt. Why? Because his hands were nailed to a cross. Jesus said to this horrible man who had just a couple minutes left, who wanted to turn, he couldn't go back to church. This guy couldn't go get baptized. He couldn't get religion. He couldn't walk the straight and narrow. Why? Because his feet were nailed to a cross. Jesus said to this guilty yet repentant man, listen to this. Truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Wow. Say that word. Paradise. We think we live in paradise. <laughs> Not today. <laughs> but no, no, no. Uh, you know, some people are like, what's heaven like? Let me tell you what heaven's like. Heaven is going to be heaven. It's going to be perfect. Everything that you want and none of what you don't want. And Jesus promised him today you will be with me in paradise. And he says this to a man. He's like, even though there's nothing that you can do to right any of the wrongs that you've done in your life, even though you deserve to die for what you've done, brother, pack your bags because we're going to heaven! <laughs> now some of you hear that and you're like, what is that? That's not fair. Where's the justice in that? This guy was guilty. He was guilty. He deserved that punishment. He may have killed somebody, right? He even admitted it. He did not deserve what Jesus told him and what Jesus gave him. And let me just say this to you. I don't deserve. I, let me tell you about what I don't deserve. I don't deserve to be standing up here in front of, talk, in front of you talking to you today. I certainly don't deserve to be called pastor or reverend. <laughs> I mean, I have messed up my life repeatedly over and over again. I have lied. I have cheated. Um, I have uh, lusted. I've, I've stolen. In fact, I spent uh, a night in jail at the Moffat County Jail for shoplifting from Kmart when I was 21. Uh, I, I've done some stuff. I've done it all. I, I've drank too much. I've done drugs. I've hurt people. I've hurt a lot of people. I've done it all. And uh, at one point, I woke up in my life, and I, I, I just kind of looked at myself in the mirror and said, I don't, I don't like you. I don't like you at all. I had a lot of guilt. I had a list of junk in my trunk that I felt bad about. I was ashamed. I mean, the guilt was overwhelming. And, and the best way I could describe how I felt was I felt dead on the inside. I just felt emptiness and dead in my inside. I mean, no, there was no hope. There was certainly no joy. There was no life. And, uh, and I began to look for answers. I was 21, and I started reading a few books and 
doing this and that. And about a month after that, a girl that I knew invited me to go to church. And, and I wasn't a church person, but I thought, what the heck? <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, it can't hurt. Some of you had that same conversation this morning. Well, y'all got invited, but what the heck? It ain't going to hurt. But, um, but I, was, I was there. I heard about Jesus kind of for the first time. I'd heard his name, and I used his name in conversations often. But uh, I didn't really understand. And I heard that because Jesus died on a cross, God would forgive me for my sins, for my failures, for my mess-ups. Now, I couldn't believe that. And I certainly didn't understand why or how that worked. But, man, I wanted to believe it. I wanted to believe that I could be forgiven. Because if he could forgive me, then maybe I could forgive myself. Right? And so I, I, I ran with that. And for the next few months, I began to read my Bible. And, and at one point, I came across a passage, and the light bulb went on. Um, it's Ephesians chapter 3. Paul is writing to the Ephesian church. He said this. Look at this. This stuck out to me. He said, like everyone else, like the rest, we were by nature deserving of God's wrath. But because of his great love for us, who God, who is rich in mercy, I love this line, made us alive in Christ even when we were dead in our sins. And it hit me for the first time I realized Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. Jesus came to make dead people alive. Now that was different because I was trying to be good. But Jesus was like, I've come to give life, to bring you life and hope in this world and the next. Man, that blew my mind. And then Paul goes on in verse 8, and he tells us how, how to get it. He said this, For it is by grace that you have been saved, through faith. Okay? This isn't a, something that you're doing of yourself. It is the gift of God. It is not by works so that anyone, no one can boast. In other words, even though I don't deserve it, even though I've done nothing to earn this, if I simply put my faith in Jesus, don't miss this, if I simply put my trust in Jesus... God promises me the gift of eternal life in paradise. He promises me that he would forgive me and that I will live forever. Man, I was amazed. That changed everything, man. I started walking differently. I started talking differently. I started living differently like that criminal. I was dead in the water. I was a dead dog. I didn't deserve it, but God gave me a chance, a second chance at life. And man, he promised, he forgave me, and he promised me to save me. Man, and it just changed everything. I began to live in a different way. And now every day since then, I live gratefully. I live passionately for Jesus, the innocent one who took my place on the cross. I live passionately for the Lamb of God who died for me and forgave me for my sins. Hallelujah. Speaking of perfect, um, I thought it would be a good way to end my message by going back to that question that I asked you at the beginning. Remember how many, here it is, how many people were on a cross that day? How many? Three. Three. Okay, thanks for keeping that in there. Three. Like I said, this is significant, and, and uh, here, let me tell you why. When I was uh, back in the day in college, I took a year off, and I went to Bible college. One year. Some of you are like, I knew it. <laughs> you don't know it. I was going to school for a history degree. I wanted to be a teacher, and I took one year of Bible college. And I took a class called numerology. Numerology. And it's interesting. It, it, it's the study of the spiritual meaning of numbers in the Bible. 
And it is absolutely fascinating. Apparently, and I began to realize this, that God can speak to us through the repetitive use of numbers in his word. That there's little hints of things, and he's trying to show themes, and he does this, and he's so genius. And I saw this. For example, um, the, number, uh, the number one in the Bible often represents the unity or the oneness of God. Right, uh, the, uh, and Jesus and how they're one. Uh, the number four often represents creation or points us to the earth. Um, the number uh, five often represents God's grace. Uh, the number seven, number seven represents God's perfection. He completed the earth and created it in seven days, and, and it's perfection. The number six is one less than seven, so that represents man or Satan, 666. Uh, number 10 rep- represents God's authority, the Ten Commandments, on and on and on and on. But boy, number three, it's my favorite. It is super interesting. Um, it always represents, the number three always represents wholeness, or com- better word, completeness. God fit God's completeness and finishing that. And uh, let me give you examples. You have heard uh, of the Trinity, right? You have the three in one, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, right? Maybe there's three qualities of God. Maybe you've never thought about this. There's God who is omnipresent, which means he is always, you know, he's all, all places. He's also omniscient. He's all-knowing. And he is omnipotent, which means he's all-powerful. It's interesting. Man is also triune in nature. We have three parts. We are body. We are soul. We have a spirit. That's our wholeness, right? And, uh, and so we understand that. We know that in the Old Testament, we know of the three patriarchal fathers. There was many fathers, but there were three that they pointed out, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? We know that there are three parts to the temple or the tabernacle. You have the outer court, you have the, the inner court, and then you have the holy of holies, right? We know that Daniel prayed how many times? Three times a day. We know that Jonah was in the belly of the whale for how many days? Three days. In the New Testament, you know that when Jesus was born, the Magi came and they brought him how many gifts? Three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, right? We understand that Jesus started his ministry at 30, at the beginning of his third decade, that Jesus' ministry lasted for three years, that Jesus was crucified at 33 we know that Jesus was tempted by the devil in the desert three times. We know that God spoke audibly over Jesus three times in the Gospels. We know that Jesus raised three people from the dead, Jairus' daughter, the widow's son, and Lazarus, right? We know that Jesus prayed three times in the Garden of Gethsemane. And that even though he had 12 disciples, he chose three disciples, Peter, James, and John, to go with him and pray. We know that Peter denied Jesus how many times? Three. And we know that Jesus restored Peter three times before Peter eventually preached at Pentecost. And on Good Friday, there were three men hanging on the crosses. And Jesus was nailed to his cross at the third hour. And above him was a sign that was placed that said, King of the Jews, in three languages, Hebrew, Greek, in Aramaic. And after three hours of darkness, Luke tells us, at the ninth hour, which is 3 p.m., Jesus said his final words, and he breathed his last. And of course, those three words have echoed to us throughout history when Jesus said, it is finished. It is complete. 
And the Bible says that the earth shook and that tombs were opened up and that the veil that separated the holy place of God was torn in two. And then Jesus' body was taken down from a cross and put in a tomb. And they rolled a stone in front of that tomb. And we know that on the first day, nothing happened. And on the second day, nothing happened. But on the third day, when the women went to the tomb, they found that the stone had been rolled away and the tomb was empty and it still is today. Why? Because the work that Jesus came to do is completed. It is finished. The work of forgiveness for you and I, the work of salvation for you and I, is completed. And this is why Jesus could turn to this repentant criminal hanging on a cross and say to a man who could do nothing to earn his forgiveness or to earn his salvation or to pay for his sins. Say to this man the most amazing words that a sinful person could ever hear. When Jesus said, truly, I tell you, today you'll be with me in paradise. That's what he said. That's what he said. It's just, in that context, it's mind-blowing. And, uh, and because he said that, Every one of us here can finally drop the guilt and the shame that we carry at the cross. And we have the opportunity to peacefully and joyfully um, walk home to our Heavenly Father who's waiting patiently for us. Amen? Amen. If you walked in here today or you're watching online and uh, your guilt... That guilt monkey is just heavy. Things that you've done recently, things you did a long time ago. I just want to encourage you, confess it to him. Get it out. <laughs> I deserve punishment for what I've done. I, I ask you to forgive me. First John 1 says that if we confess our sins to God, he will be faithful and just to forgive us all of our sins and all of our craziness. What a great deal. <laughs> Who could have pictured that? And if you feel dead inside this morning, you need to remember that God, Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. <laughs> he came to make dead people alive. That's the good news. That's the gospel. That's what he said. And my friend, that is Easter. Amen? Amen. Amen. I want to pray for you and pray with you. If you bow your heads and hearts. God, uh, thank you. Um, for what you've done. Uh, every year we come back to this story. And the story of Easter is so amazing to us. It's, it's so complex in some ways. And yet it is so simple. That even a caveman can get it right. You came. Jesus you came. You stepped out of heaven. You put on a, a human suit. And you lived a perfect life. And then you died for my crimes. You died for the things that I've done wrong. And then you were raised from the dead. You were resurrected. And you did all of that for me, for us. Even though we didn't deserve it. We deserved something else. We know the things that we've thought. We know the things that we've done. And we're no good. But we thank you for your grace. We thank you for this gift. We thank you that you 
uh, love us and that you came looking for us. Even when we hated you, even when we rejected you, even when we were angry with you, you came for us. We thank you for that. And like that father in the video we just saw, we're reminded that our Heavenly Father is longing for every one of us to come home. That he is patiently praying and looking out the window and looking down the road, hoping to see our figure in the distance, walking home, <laughs> carrying our bags of guilt and shame and pride. And in our, inside our hearts, we're hoping against hope that just maybe, just maybe, you might welcome us back. Well, my friend, the truth is that he will and he does every day. And all that is required is very simply to follow the pattern of that thief who said, I've done it. I did it. I deserve it. And I confess that to you. And I ask that you remember me. Romans chapter 8 says that if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and like that criminal, believe in your heart that he was the Son of God and that God raised him from the dead, you shall be forgiven and you shall be saved. Forgiveness and paradise is yours. Today could be your homecoming. It's easier and simpler than you imagined. It's better than you ever could have dreamed. God did it. All we need to do is receive it. It's a gift and it's being handed to you. It doesn't make sense. And we'll wonder for why forever. Why? Why? All you have to do is say, remember me, forgive me. I want to follow you. Thank you, Lord, for that. Thank you for Easter. All God's children say amen.